with me to Romans chapter 8. This is the third sermon that, uh, that is coming from these particular verses, verses 28 to 30, though I'm going to begin uh, reading at verse 26. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 17 sermons from these verses. So you're getting off easy. Lucky you. And the other thing I I think I would like to say uh, as we look at these verses is just this. Please think of this as as an ongoing conversation. Almost one sermon spread across now three weeks and probably will end up being four or five weeks. Um, Please think of it in that way because what we're trying to do is consider not only the text but work out implications and applications of the text. And that that's just going on across these weeks. So, so I'll help you in this, but let's try to keep in mind the things that we've been looking at as we're making our way through these verses. And look with me then at verse 26 of Romans 8, and we'll read together. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son." in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Lord, help us again by your Spirit as we consider your Word, as we seek to to take it in and apply it. We need your help. Uh, So please uh, open the eyes of our understanding. Open uh, our hearts that we might receive the things that you have for us on this particular day uh, so that we might be shaped and molded by these things. We we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're picking up where we where we left off last week, and and I want to begin with with the the scene from from this great movie, um, sad ending. Um, and I, I guess I, I don't know I don't know how you measure what is a great movie, but anyway, it's this movie that stars these two handsome uh, blue-eyed actors, uh, both of whom my wife is in love with. Um, the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, if you've if you've seen the movie, you know that they're bank robbers and they they turn from uh, robbing banks to robbing trains and and now they're confronting not only law enforcement people but uh, they're confronting Mr. E. H. Harriman of the Union Pacific Railroad and um, and they're um, they're found out they're discovered and they're now fleeing and they're fleeing from Mr. E. H. Harriman and they they charge across this open plain, and they make their way up into these rugged mountains, this rugged and mountainous territory, and they, they think that they've lost the lawmen who are chasing them. 
But they look out across the, the plain and they see this cloud of dust, this dust that's being stirred up by the hooves of horses. And, and they're waiting with bated breath to see if, if this cloud of dust is going to go that way or that way. But it doesn't go that way or that way. It comes right at them. It comes right at them. And one of these blue-eyed, handsome actors looks at the other and says, Who are those guys? How do they do that? Meaning, how do, how do they track us across rock and open plains? How do they do that? And he, and he looks at the other handsome blue-eyed actor and he says, I can't do that. Can you do that? How do they do that? And then they scramble from their cover and continue to make their way farther and farther up into the mountains. And what you see in that scene on the face particularly of this one handsome blue-eyed actor, is a look of great dismay and even terror and fear. Because it's clear to him, it's clear to him that whoever those guys are, they have an ability that he himself does not have. They have knowledge they have power, they have understanding, they have capabilities that they, those two guys up there in the mountains, simply do not have. Now, you read Romans 8:28 in the midst of the circumstances of your life. And I've pointed this out to us many times as we've made our way through Romans chapter 8 and particularly this section of Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 15, 16, 17, and following, that the context here, the immediate context, the environment in which the Apostle Paul writes and says these things, the audience and their context to whom these things are addressed, the immediate context is a context of difficulty and opposition and suffering. Suffering is the word that's operative. In verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present life not worthy of comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us and in us. Suffering is the setting. Suffering has been the setting if you go back to to chapter 5 and verse 1. God is working in the midst of our sufferings and through our sufferings he's building character and perseverance and and hope and hope doesn't disappoint because the Holy Spirit is poured out within us and upon us. It's struggle, it's heartache, it's difficulty. And in the midst of that, here is this verse, verse 828. God meaning the Holy Spirit, that's what I suggested to you last week. The Holy Spirit is the one who is active in this chapter and in this passage. The person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the third person, is working all things together. All of this in accordance with his perfect purpose for your good. He works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. All things, all things, the apostle is saying, are in the hands of this God. You say, I can't do that. Can he do that? How can he do that? I can't do that. 
Well, you see, that's that's the fundamental difference, isn't it? He is God and you are not. He is God and I am not. And you return to those omnis that we talked about briefly last week. The fact that he is omnipresent, that he is present everywhere. And in every particular point of everywhere, he is present in the totality of his being and existence. I know that's hard to fathom, but it's what we mean by omnipotence. He is all-knowing. He possesses all knowledge. Not only things as they are in their actual relationships to each other, but in all of the possible relationships that they could have to each other. And he knows not only those things, he knows things that aren't, but which might be in all of their possible relationships to all things that are in all of their actual relationships. He knows everything. And he possesses all power. I can't do that. Can you do that? How does he do that? He is God. He is God. Isn't this the challenge always? We'll come back to this in just a second. Isn't this the challenge always? That we end up making God in our image after our likeness and understanding. And he is just incomprehensibly and infinitely and immeasurably bigger than our largest conceptions of him. I can't do that. Can you do that? How can he do that? He is not you. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Some, some time recently, there was uh, there was a, a, some sort of a, a of a solar eruption up there on the sun. Did you did you know this? Did you follow this? And and because of that eruption or those eruptions, solar particles, a solar shower was sent in the direction of the earth, presumably not just in the direction of the earth, but we live on earth, so it matters to us that it came in our direction. Do you know the speed at which those solar particles, those radioactive solar particles were racing toward Earth? 1,400 miles per second. Dodge one if you can. The concern was that it was going to disrupt all of, all of these functions, all of these satellite functions, and GPS stuff was going to go haywire, and, and who knows, maybe all of that stuff that we thought was going to happen in the year 2000 would happen as a result of the solar shower. Computers would go haywire, and you'd end up with no money in your bank, and it would all be in my bank account. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Every single one of those solar Particles traveling at 1,400 miles per second is under the control of the absolute sovereign control and power of Almighty God, and all of it is working together for your good. Not just the stuff you can see, not just the stuff in your immediate environment, but the totality of everything in the universe is in the hands of this God who is that big and who is your Father ordering everything for the good of those who love Him 
and are the called according to his purpose. Now, who are those in whose behalf and for whose good all things are working together? Well, here is where we stumble into these words. I thought I was going to talk about this last week, but apparently it was foreordained that I would talk about them this week because I didn't talk about them last week. Can you chuckle with me at the irony? Here is where we stumble into these words that have caused considerable consternation and controversy. These words, foreknown and predestined. And then their companion words, election or elect. That's what we read in the text. Who are those for whom God is working all things together? For whose good is he working all things together? Well, he is working all things together for those who are called, verse 28, called according to his purpose. He is working all things together for those whom he foreknew and whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, what do these things mean? What do these words mean? Mean well. That's what we. That's what we want to look at. That's what we want to think about. And as we think about these words, these words foreknowledge and these words, this word predestination, as well as this companion term election, there are a few things that we have to say as preliminary things. Forgive me, but I I just feel the need to offer these preliminary remarks with respect to these words before we actually deal with the words themselves in greater detail, which we will do next week. Got to come back. Here's the first thing. It's very important that we understand, it's pretty clear here in this passage, but it's pretty important that we understand that these terms are Bible terms. The term predestination is a Bible term. The term election is a Bible term. The term foreknowledge is a Bible term. Lots of times across 30 years of ministry, when people learn that I'm a pastor, if they don't run and hide, and then learn that I am a Presbyterian pastor, they will ask me questions about these words. They'll, they'll begin their questioning with a response, something like this. Oh, you're one of those Calvinists. You believe in predestination. I don't believe in that. You're one of those Calvinists. You believe in predestination. I don't believe in that. And what what seems to be suggested to me in a statement like that is that they have come to the conclusion, folks who raised this question, and I'm happy to talk about these things, very happy to talk about these things, but in the question and the way the question is framed, it's suggested to me that these ideas of predestination and election are foreign concepts to Christianity, that they're foreign to Christianity and even foreign to the Bible. 
that, that John Calvin, sitting in Geneva in, 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 a, in a closed room someplace, surrounded by a whole bunch of dusty books, decided to disrupt the peace and harmony of the church and created this doctrine of election and predestination. And that just isn't the case. The first thing that we have to see, I think, is that these words, these ideas, are in the scriptures themselves. Let me give you just a few passages where these concepts, these words are used. Going all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 18, verses 17 and 18, a passage involving Abraham and, and remember, as you hear these words read, that Abram is not only the father of a nation, but he is also the model in Scripture of the life of faith. He's the model of the life of faith. And so Paul uses him as the supreme example of faith in chapter 4 of Romans. James uses him as the supreme example of the life of faith in James chapter 2. Hebrews Chapter 11 gives more ink to Abraham as a man of faith than to anyone else. The point there is simply that what is true of Abraham is true of the children of Abraham, the true seed of Abraham. If it was true of him, it's true of you. If it's in his DNA, it's going to be in your DNA as a spiritual descendant of your father Abraham. And here is what we read in Genesis 18, verses 17 and 18. In speaking to Abraham and about Abraham, God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do with respect to Sodom and Gomorrah? For I have chosen him that he may, the Lord, that he the Lord may bring about what he has promised to him. I have chosen him that I may bring about what has been promised to him. Chosen him. Election. There's another passage, Isaiah 44, verses 1 and 2. God speaking to the nation. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Fear not, O Jacob, whom I have chosen. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you that he has chosen you. So we move forward, we're going to note that there is a real connection between God loving and God choosing. A real and inextricable connection between the two. God loved Israel and chose Israel. And here in Romans, Romans chapter 11, as Paul responds to his Jewish readers who have a concern about those Jews who have not responded to the gospel. That's what he's dealing with in chapters 9 through 11. He's, he's wrestling with the question, what about these Jewish people who have not responded to the promised Messiah? How am I to understand that? Has God failed in his purpose? Has God failed in his promise? 
And in chapter 11, Paul, in responding to that question, writes this. Verses 1 through 2 and then verse 7. I ask then, has God rejected his people or failed in his promise or failed in his purpose? Paul's answer is, by no means or God forbid. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now we're going to deal with this in greater detail, but basically what the apostle is saying is this. Here's the explanation for how you account for the fact that Jews living at the time of Christ who did not receive Christ rejected Christ. Here's how you account for that. There is an elect people in the midst of the elect nation. There is a foreknown people in the midst of a foreknown nation. And Paul is an example of that. And Paul is saying, no, God's purposes have not failed. His promise has not failed. And I am the evidence of that. I, by God's grace, have embraced the Messiah. And all like me who similarly embrace the Messiah find from the Jewish nation find that the promises of God, the purposes of God are fulfilled in them, those whom he foreknew. And then in verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. This is Romans chapter 11. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. I know that's going to cause some struggles for us. It's off in the distance, but we'll come to it and work through it. My point here now is simply to show you that these words, election, for knowing, predestination, these words you find in the scriptures themselves. They are Bible terms. And our challenge is to come to terms with what they mean. And that leads to the second thing. The second sort of preliminary comment. I must remember who I am and I must remember who God is. I must remember who I am and I must remember who God is. That God is the creator and that I am the creature. And and the application of this, and this is a challenge, folks. It's a challenge to me. Whenever I read Romans 8.28, to be quite honest and forthright with you, whenever I read Romans 8.28 and I consider the circumstances of my life, not that the circumstances of my life are bad, I consider the sufferings of my life, not that the sufferings of my life are anything other but minuscule compared to the sufferings of other people in the world. Nevertheless, as I consider them, I read Romans 8.28, the question is, will I as the creature believe that what God the Creator has said is true? And will I bring my thinking under his thinking? Or will I require that his thinking be submitted to my thinking? Do you understand what we're saying? 
The question as I come to things in the scriptures that I struggle with, the question is, will I remember that I am the creature before the creator and that in this as in everything, I am seeking to bring my thinking, my understanding, my view of reality under his thinking, his understanding, his view of reality. The original sin, friends, the original sin was simply the sin of rejecting the word of God. And the damage that has been done because creatures refuse to submit their thinking to the thinking of the creator is damage that you and I continue to feel today. It is never This is practical application. This is pastoral admonition. It is never safe to reject the thinking of God with respect to himself, with respect to you, with respect to the reality in which we find ourselves. It is always supremely dangerous to presume to take the place of God whose knowledge is what we have said that it is, who whenever he speaks, speaks truth, who alone in the universe has the accurate and adequate understanding of the nature of reality, it is always desperately dangerous to repudiate his understanding of things and replace that understanding with mine. As I come to things that strain my capacities, that exceed my grasp, I must humbly come before God as creator and Lord and seek to understand his mind and not say, that doesn't fit my view of reality, therefore, I'm not going to believe it. Bad idea. So that's the second thing. As a creature, I come humbly before God as creator and seek to understand as best I can his mind and bring my thinking in submission to his. And that will be true as we contemplate foreknowledge, predestination, election, this whole concept. I come before him in his word. And then that leads to the third thing. And I think this is critically important as well. We need to understand what Paul's method is here. And we need to understand that Paul is acting as a pastor. He is writing as a pastor. He is not writing these things. He is not writing about these things as an abstract, ivory tower, theoretical, philosopher, theologian, removed from the particular sufferings and details of people's lives. He is a pastor. Let me press that out from Paul to Jesus himself. That Paul is only emulating Jesus, who is himself the supreme pastor, the truest pastor, the best pastor who himself always and only speaks what he speaks 
for his people, to his people, for their benefit. We're working through the revelation on Sunday evenings. Jesus didn't give the revelation to John so that John could give it to the church of his day and to the church of Jesus Christ across the centuries. Jesus didn't give that book to John so that it could then be given to the church to create trouble, to stir up controversy, to incite people to divisions. Whatever it is that is going on with these words that do so challenge and strain our understanding, we must understand they come originally from Jesus, who is your pastor, who loves you deeply and desperately. And they come to you through the Apostle Paul, who is himself a pastor in his particular place, in his particular time, very mindful, very mindful, of the needs of his people. He's not toying with us in using these words. As I said to some folks recently, it's not like Paul is making his way through chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 of Romans, which is this massive section that deals with assurance, right? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've gained access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of Romans 8, there's nothing in all of the creation that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 32, if God has given us His Son, won't He also in Him, with Him, by Him, freely give us all things? It's not as though in this incredible exposition of the assurance that comes to us in the Gospel, Paul says to his people here in Rome, enough of this assurance stuff. I'm going to liberally sprinkle some controversy in here to unsettle these people. No. His concern continues to be intensely pastoral. And as he raises, this is what I want to suggest to you. As a pastor who loves his people, and by the way, if you want a a real indication of the degree to which the apostle loves people, read just the first two verses of Romans 9. If you think he's an abstract ivory tower theologian or a misogynist, someone who hates women, listen to what he says of himself with respect to his countrymen. I could wish myself accursed, cut off from God myself for the sake of my brethren according to the flesh. He loves people. And as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who loves those people even more perfectly and intensely than the Apostle Paul, he uses these words. This is what I'd suggest to you. He uses these words, foreknowledge, predestination, and then calling and justification and glorification. He uses these words to take these people to an even deeper level of assurance. And if I could just summarize it, this is the Cliff Notes summary of what he's saying here. You who find yourselves in the midst of distress and difficulty, understand this. 
the, the God who loves you now is the God who saved you in the first place. Remember Romans 5, verse 8? Even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The God who loves you now and who saved you in Christ through his death and resurrection is a God who has loved you from all eternity. And because he has loved you from all eternity, he will not stop loving you in the present and he will love you into all eternity forever and ever and ever. That's what this is about. It is about taking God's people to a deeper level of assurance in His love in the midst of their uncertainties. That's His method as a pastor. His method is to speak truth to people who need in the midst of their struggles to hear and to know truth. And then here's the fourth thing. And this is a preliminary thing. Number one, they're biblical terms. Number two, I submit my thinking to God's thinking. Number three, I understand that Jesus' intent in this passage is to comfort and encourage and reassure me. And here's the fourth thing. Predestination can never be disconnected from God's purpose. And you see that reflected in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The business of predestination can never be abstracted out from what God's ultimate purpose is. And those whom he foreknew, having set his affection upon them in eternity past, he then predestines to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, there is an end in view. There is an outcome here. There is a purpose in it all. And you know what that purpose is? It is that you might be restored and conformed to the image of Jesus the beloved child of his father. Illustration. Think Michelangelo. And think Michelangelo's David. I've used this before. Can't find a better one. And imagine Michelangelo wandering around in the stone yard out behind the museum. And he sees this this perfect piece of stone, marble or whatever it is that sculptors use to create sculpture. He's wandering around in the boneyard, the stone yard, and he sees this beautiful piece of marble and says, no, that won't do. And he keeps rooting around and looking around and he goes to the back of the boneyard, the back of the stone yard, and he finds a massive piece of marble that is deeply flawed. And he says, that's it. And this is true. And from that deeply 
flawed piece of rock. He produces the David, the sculpture that experts judge to be, if not the best, one of the most glorious pieces of sculpture ever produced. From a flawed piece of rock. And he went into the boneyard and he sought it. He found it. And he went to work on it. And imagine that you're that piece of rock. And he starts to hammer and chisel and chip and peck away. And it's not a piece of rock, but it is you. It is your life. And what he's chipping away what he's hammering away, what he is sanding away, what he is polishing away is all of the imperfection so that out of it there might be produced a thing of exquisite loveliness and beauty. Those whom he foreknew back in the boneyard, he chose He selected, he picked out imperfect, impure, corrupted piece of rocks. And in his gentle, loving, artistic, fashioning hands, he is molding and shaping you to be conformed to the image, the exquisite, delightful, lovely, God-glorifying, glory-reflecting image of His beloved Son. And it's the hammer and the chisel and the sandpaper and the heat which He is employing so that you, one day, might be beautiful beyond recognition. People ask me, will we know each other in heaven? I used to say yes. I now say no. We'll have plenty of time to find out. But the work of Jesus, when completed, will have been so transformational, so perfecting, producing a thing of such loveliness, that I won't know you and you won't know me. And when I tell you who I am, you will be aghast. You? You are. You are and ever will be in the hands of a father who has loved you from before the foundation of the world and who will not let you go until he has brought you into perfect conformity with the glorious image of his beautiful son. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we struggle with things that we do not and cannot understand, grant us grace to humble ourselves before you and receive 
Receive these things as you intend for them to be received. Words of comfort. Give us grace to trust you that you know what you're doing. To the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.